Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we get to the show today, I have a favor to ask. If you're a regular listener, I hope you'll take a moment. Since Biden was elected, The Intercept has lost more than 4,000 monthly donors. That's a 20% decline. As a nonprofit news outlet, we depend on readers and listeners like you to keep the lights on. Deconstructed listeners like you know that this is no time to look away. The Intercept was founded on the premise that investigative journalism is just as important regardless of which party sits in the White House. To get back on track, we've set an ambitious goal of reaching 15,000 sustaining members by April 30th. Your monthly donation to The Intercept will help us take on the most demanding projects in investigative journalism, not just today, but well into the future. Become a monthly donor right now at theintercept.com slash give. That's theintercept.com slash give. Thanks so much. And now on to the show. All right, on this week's podcast, we are welcoming back to the show Ari Ravenhoff. Ari, thanks for joining us again. Third time, hopefully a charm. Third t- third time, both of your previous appearances have been have been re- listener hits. It's hard for me to think of people as other than readers, but listeners. If people want to hear more about Ari's kind of his professional background, check out the episode on the parliamentarian. Like we go, we go through some of your early years. Some deep Senate cuts there. Some deep Senate cuts there. Uh, Ari was also one of the guests in talking about the legacy of Harry Reid, having worked for him, off and on for many, many years. Well, you kind of never stop. You never, for you never Harry stop Reed. working. Once you're a made man, the, you know, you the, can't get out. They just pull you back in. In the Harry. So today he's today he's joining us to talk about his new book out called "The Fighting Soul out on the Road," April twenty sixth with Bernie Sanders. Out April 26th. Not out yet, but you already had. So it was in the New York Times, Maureen Dowd. Congratulations. And authors love to get write-ups in the New York Times, and they'll take it if it's well, Maureen Dowd. You, you take it. You take you take what you can get. So it'll be out soon. But you All can right. pre-order it everywhere. The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders. And so how did you first meet Bernie Sanders? So in 2016, I had kind of left direct electoral politics for a while. I was hosting a show on Sirius XM on their progressive channel. And I was assigned by Sirius to cover the Javits Center, the night of what was supposed to be Hillary's election. And I had this plan after the election that what I wanted to do was continue to do my show, but start a kind of think tank that would be a counter to Third Way to push Hillary's administration to the left and kind of force those issues and be a, a resource for progressives on Capitol Hill. And there was some funding in place and there were some kind of initial thoughts. And the plan was pretty far because I don't think anybody really expected, not anybody, there are definitely people who expected, but it didn't look likely that Donald Trump was going to win. And the question was, now we have an administration that is not progressive in the sense that I am. 
And how do we push them to be more progressive? How do we strengthen progressives' hands on the Hill? And looked at Third Way as a model of what they do to moderates and said, mm -hmm. this would be a good thing. Obviously, that night, mm -hmm. the election does not go that way. And it was like 9.30 in the evening. And I ran into an, an old friend who was like, who I asked, what's going on in Florida? And they said, oh, there's still votes out. There's still votes out. And this was after I was up in the hall and I watched their sur the Clinton surrogate team. It's like a hall of radio hosts, mm -hmm. kind of next to where the rally area was. I watched them pull their surrogates very quickly out of the hall. So I knew something was going on because they literally came in and swept up all the circuits, mm -hmm. pushed them out. And he said that to me and I turned, I was like, you guys lost this. Like, holy shit, Donald Trump's gonna be president. And I went back on air and it was like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, Donald Trump is gonna win. I, I really do think Hillary has lost this. I think the campaigns, mm -hmm. people think that. And I got like a text from one of the serious XM executives being like, that's a bold call to make at this hour. And I'm like, I'm sticking to it. like. Something might turn, but right now this is not looking good. And it's a strange moment because I don't think anybody conceived of what a Donald Trump presidency would be like. Including Donald Trump. Including Donald Trump. And I walked back to Times Square because I couldn't get a cab or an Uber. It was like all jammed up. And I got to my hotel because Sirius Studios are right next to Times Square. So I was staying in Times Square and I walked over at 530 in the morning and Joe Sudbay and Linda Sarsour were hosting like the three to 6 a.m. that night they had mm -hmm. them and they just looked wrecked, right? And I, we all hugged and I don't even remember doing that show. It's just like I went on autopilot because I remember walking over to the studio being like, what the F am I going to say? And I remember being like, I don't know what to say to people at this point. My whole plan was like the, the start of a progressive push against Hillary, yeah. not uh, Donald Trump is going to be president. What do we do? And the only thing I'm thinking in my mind is hosting a radio show is the easiest job in the world. It's actually not. It's actually a huge <laughs> grind and like, but you're not a part of it. You're kind of outside the system. And I was just like, I have to get back in politics in some way. I started making calls. And in, you know, there were points during 2015, 2016 where I had random discussions with people about joining the Bernie campaign and they kind of were pushed aside for a few reasons. Mm -hmm. But I started getting serious and Faz and I were talking and Faz knew Bernie from his time in Reed and then had helped Bernie's campaign for a bit. So Faz introduced me to Bernie. I went over to like a few weeks later, I got called in for an interview with him. We spoke for a few hours and I remember thinking I'm going to do this interview and just say, like, just give him my ideas and whatever happens, happens. And the next day I was in my office and I was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt, like completely slovenly. And I got a call from Warren Gunnels, who's Bernie's longest, like continuously mm -hmm. serving staffer at this point. And Warren's like, can you come in at one o'clock? And it was like noon. <laughs> and I was like, sure. And I ran across the street to a Joseph A. Bank because I couldn't get home to get clothing on. And I literally bought a suit at Joseph A. Bank to go into the, into the meeting. But it's Joseph A. Bank, so I, I got three suits. Buy one suit, get two free at Joseph A. Bank. I, I, but they're always like, I three suits it. for the price yeah. of one. Mm -hmm. That's always their thing. Yeah. And get two free Friday through Sunday at Joseph A. Bank. You can't I, just get a suit. You can't just get it. It's like yeah. you're just wasting two suits at that point. And they're like cheap suits. And <laughs> so I show up in Bernie's office with like two shopping bags. 
the person at the front desk looked at me like I was absolutely out of my mind. Yeah. And I was like, I'm here to see Bernie. Uh, just sit over there. And like five minutes later, Bernie pokes his head out of his conference room and he's like, Ari, uh, what are you doing? You get in here. So like, the, the front desk goes, oh, you're not crazy. And so I walk into the room and it's his senior staff and he's having a senior staff meeting. And he just has a senior staff meeting with me sitting there. And um, after the meeting, he pulled me in and we had another conversation. And he was basically like, yeah, I think this is going to work. I'll give you a call. Like a few weeks later, I got a call from his then chief of staff, Michael Lean. We talked about it. I decided it was I wanted to get back in. And I thought Bernie Sanders was the opportunity to work for somebody whose policies I always agreed with, who I really believed was the answer to Donald Trump's authoritarianism, who I really believed would have won in 2016. And uh, the opportunity presented itself and I took it. And Bernie, over over the course of that first year, Bernie and I grew closer and closer together. And that's how I ended up. And the Faz you're talking about is Faz Shakir, who then ended up becoming his 2020 campaign manager. Yes. You ended up becoming one of the deputy campaign, campaign managers. And the book is not a typical kind of analysis of Bernie. It's not an analysis of politics. It's kind of your story yeah, of and following not... Bernie and being one of the closest physical, physically, like proximately to him yeah, what, what over I thought, a period of like four or five years. What I thought about this book is Bernie is one of the most famous people on earth. He'd hate that, like that's mm -hmm. the term I'd refer to him as. But well, he he's is. like Mick Jagger, as he, said, as, as he says in the book. In, there's <laughs> a line in the book where we were driving outside the Capitol, like cutting across the front of the Capitol. And there was a group of school kids who were on some tour and they saw Bernie was in this car in the front seat. And they like surrounded the car and were screaming, Bernie, Bernie. And he like rolled down the window and they're taking selfies with him. And the light changes to like green. And we go and, you know, for like, the next, like, you hear, ah, like the kids are so excited. And Bernie just turns to me. He's like, I'm like Mick Jagger. <laughs> and, it, you know, he's he can laugh about it. Like he was making a he was really making a joke about himself. And that's the side of Bernie that, first off, a lot of people don't know that he's a really funny guy. But second, I, I do actually also believe he is probably the most important person not to win the presidency since William Jennings Bryan or since TR in 1912. Most important elected. Most yeah. official not to win yeah. the presidency in terms of influence over politics. I do think Bernie fundamentally changed the Democratic Party in this country. And I I see all these campaign books, these kind of, you know, the reporter tell-alls, and then somebody, you know, somebody writes a like palace intrigue book, yada, yada, mm -hmm. yada. And I was like, there's no book from an outside perspective, well, an inside perspective, but with kind of a going back to kind of my writing eye before mm -hmm. politics. Right, because this is not your first book. This is my first book. Who is Bernie? And I felt I had a real story to tell about, frankly, our journeys for three years around the country. And the most important part is who this guy is, who is a pretty remarkable human being that I think, even if you don't like Bernie, this is a story that I think you should read. And one reason you so few people know Bernie is his hostility to what he sees as frivolous. Yeah. And he sees as frivolous anything that he doesn't want to be talking about at that moment. Like but, any issue that he's not, if, he, if it's something outside of the issue that he's driving at that precise moment, it's frivolous. I wouldn't go that broad because I, 
I don't think he would see some foreign. If he wants to talk about the economy, okay, yeah, he wouldn't I, see like I don't mean that a foreign right. policy yeah, yeah. issue is frivolous. I do think he views a lot of what the political media covers in DC, mm-hmm. a lot of the personality stuff, a lot of the oh we need color stuff, mm-hmm. uh, frivolity. But that's also how people shape their views on candidates. But that's also that level of discipline is why Bernie is Bernie. I think that's the other piece of the book that I think is the most important message. There are all these people who, after the campaign, their message, which if if only Bernie changed X about himself, he could have won. But the point is, he can't change that (laughs) about himself. The Bernie that presents is 100% authentic to Bernie, except cursing in in private. Mm -hmm. And you don't get Bernie, but it also means he's not a standard politician and won't play by the rules of standard politicians. And we kind of can get into examples of that as we talk about the book. And there's not too much frivolity in the book, but one of the moments where I I might have had tears running down my cheeks reading it laughing is your description of a dinner in Vermont with you and Warren Gunnels and and Bernie where you decide to go to the supermarket. Bernie wants to cook. So we were in Vermont and Warren and I went up to help him with his, um, with a book project. We'd taken time off and we went up to Vermont and Bernie said like, let's get steak for dinner. I say this in the book, but steak for dinner with Bernie can mean like a few different interpretations. It could mean in DC, Pizzeria Uno could be referred to as the steak place, <laughs> which not a good steak. It's not even a good pizza place. I say this as somebody who was a waiter at Pizzeria Uno, but it also in, in Burlington, it could mean there's a hibachi place mm-hmm. that isn't bad that he has referred to as the steak place. But in this case, we drove to the supermarket in his Chevy Aveo, which there was like all these right-wing weird rumors at one point that Bernie had like an Audi, like a $100,000 Audi when he's driving a Chevy Aveo, which is, I don't know if people know what, go look up the Chevy Aveo <laughs> and see what this car is. Trust me. It is literally the exact opposite. How does he survive winters in Vermont? Oh my God. I, those once, things. I was at a staff member's house for a social gathering and Bernie came and it was the middle of winter and the house is like on a hill in Burlington and I'm watching Bernie parallel park the Chevy Aveo on the ice and and I was like, oh my God, this is not a good situation. Uh So you take the Aveo to the supermarket. So you take the Aveo to the supermarket and he literally like buys ice cream, frozen peas and a London broil. Was it Ben and Jerry's? No, it was not Ben and Jerry's. Oh, 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 oh no, oh no, no, it was was not, scoop, (laughs) two scoops. and we go back to his house and he has like a like a normal grill outside and he kind of throws the steak on the grill and then turns on the propane. So the grill isn't even heated up, which basic steak cooking 101, you heat up the grill before so you can get a sear on it, throws the, the peas into like a pot of water or whatever and serves this steak that honestly- He just pulled it right out of the bag. Like, right? yeah, just, just pulled it right out, out of the bag, threw it on the grill. Slaps and, and Warren's sitting there and he's like, oh my God, this is a great steak. And I'm like, and 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 by the way, Warren totally legit, like believe, like 100%. Warren thought it was a great steak, and I'm just like, this is. How much did you get through? I mean, half. May I? I don't remember. I remember like struggling through this one, and Bernie would make fun of me. He's like, yeah, you and Jeff eat at the Rahm Emanuel place. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the is that BLT? BLT. This because he once was super at expensive. At the, yeah. uh, he once was at a meeting at the AFL CIO, which is on 16th Street, and around the corner mm-hmm. there's this steak place in DC, BLT, which is in other cities too. It's like a steak, mm-hmm. high-end steak chain, I guess. And I think he walked in and saw the prices and like- Did he see Rahm? He and saw, he saw Rahm Manuel there and saw the prices on the menu. And, like, and walked, walked out. out. <laughs> um, there was once like, 
some like scene in DC and it was like Jeff, me and a few other people were having dinner at BLT. And for some reason, one of the newsletters put it in that we were seen eating dinner at a steak place, which... And he read the newsletter and so he he, made funny for... He had seen the thing in his clips, I think. And, you know, he loves like Outback Steakhouse and Long... He loves those like fast, casual Mm -hmm. restaurants when you're on the road for... He thinks they like their service is good. They don't... He's like, they don't bug you a lot and they're really nice and the people in there are really down to earth, which is actually true. Like when we would go to those restaurants, no matter where we were, hugely positive reception, everybody kind of walking up, being super nice. The wait staff, always very excited. I think it was always a good feeling in those mm-hmm. places. But he was like, Ari, oh, have you been to the Outback? This is like one time we were like in like rural Ohio. I tell, I was like, no, I've never been to one. He's like, oh, the ribeye is delicious. And so we end up like going to this like rural Ohio one. We go out. He's like, so was that, that, that wasn't any worse than the steak you have at that Rahm Emanuel place, was it? <laughs> It was <laughs> a little bit worse. A little bit worse. Let me, let me tell you, I I don't mind the, the outback, but I, I I prefer others. And so the, his like hostility to frivolity kind of bleeds into the politics in some interesting ways. You write about something that was covered at the time because it was literally visible to the audience. This is the moment where you had to try to talk Bernie Sanders into putting on a T-shirt, like a purple Jim so, Clyburn. Yeah, the T-shirt, Clyburn, which he put on for a moment and then took so off. Yeah, or, so the yeah. Clyburn fish fry to Jim Clyburn's world famous fish fry is this big political event in South Carolina. This year, Congressman Clyburn has 4,500 pounds of fish in the fridge and candidates are coming to Columbia by the dozen. For and it was the first moment of the campaign. Actually, all the candidates were in a singular location together. And first off, not to sidetrack the story, but I actually think it was this interesting moment to watch all the candidates interacting where Bernie kind of stayed on the outside. There was like a glass green room and Bernie kind of stayed in the hallway and Bernie and Biden were chatting and like Bernie, like and Amy and uh, Amy Klobuchar and Mm -hmm. a bunch of them were chatting, but like other candidates, like Cory Booker's work in the room, Tom Steyer was kind of working the room. It was interesting to see kind of the mix of personalities of the candidates all together with very little staff because every candidate only had one staff member in that area. So the Clyburn staff comes around and they want everybody to wear these Jim Clyburn fish fry t-shirts. So they're like a bluish color as I remember it. Mm -hmm. And they line up all the candidates and I give Bernie's t-shirt. He's like, what's this? And and like, he's in a line with all the candidates and they're all wearing the t-shirt. I'm like, they want you to put on the t-shirt. And like he debated, he he put it on for like a second and then he took it off. Kind of looks at himself. Looks at himself. What am I doing? In fairness, they all looked ridiculous. (laughs) Right. And 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 his point to me later was like, you have people running for the most powerful office in the country who are going to go on stage and say some serious things about policy in the Democratic Party. Why are we making them? Why would you make them wear a costume, basically? And the Clyburn staff is like giving me like evil eyes and like because now we're all herded into the kind of the side stage area and the candidates are kind of in groups being kind of shuffled to the front. And it's very obvious Bernie's the only person like, where's his T-shirt? And I was like, I'm holding his T-shirt. And I'm, I've had a debate with him already. I have lost the debate about mm-hmm. putting on the T-shirt. And, you know, when you've lost the debate, you've lost the debate. And he goes up and gives it without a T-shirt. And Twitter, like, lit up that night. It was like the <laughs> Twitter thing of the moment. He did put on the T-shirt for the group photo because he thought that made right, sense. Right, because you'd, you'd look a little weird with the group without your right. T-shirt. So he put on the T-shirt for the group photo of all the candidates. But look, 
here's the thing. As a staffer, those moments are like obscenely annoying. But also Bernie's right. Mm-hmm. And he was right in the moment. But that's also an example like there's a, a, a wish that like you have a candidate who will just kind of do the script, do the thing that normal politician would do, do those things. But the point is Bernie is Bernie because he doesn't because he sees politics as something more important than putting on a silly T-shirt. And what some people listening will say, well, they, they'll say, well, that this is actually a metaphor for something that Bernie should have done. You know, it's, it's cost free. Put the T-shirt on. Make the birthday phone call. You know, that, that famous right. interaction with the New York Times. Where I just don't I just don't call people on their birthday or say you're a Democrat. Say you're a Democrat. Do the niceties. That's a little bit more substantial. That's more substantial, but, but it's in the same it's vein. It's in the same vein. If you're playing the game. Yeah. And he doesn't believe it's a game. Right. And I think if he did believe it's a game, he would be a generic uh, Democrat right. from the Northeast. But he doesn't. And the reason Bernie is Bernie is because he is not a generic politician, because he will do the thing he thinks is right. And he t- he takes this stuff very, very seriously. And by the way, of every politician I've worked for, he is the most disciplined about the words that come out of his mouth. And it's the same thing. That's mm-hmm. important, right? right. It's, the message is important. We're not going to pass up an opportunity to talk about important issues. At, even in places where you wouldn't normally do it, I'm going to do it. Speaking of important issues, in so in 2018, he's pushing a Yemen war powers resolution. This is when we covered this closely at the intercept you you were working with him at the time and Matt does on the hill a ton of credit for this Matt the does and actually that this is also an evolution in Bernie as a politician the just the existence of Matt Duss on his staff this is how I've always understood it that Bernie had been resistant to hiring a significant amount of staff for a long time that he that he felt like there was something compromising in a way that the staff were going to be helpful obviously you need staff to support you but that there are a lot of staff in D.C. who are just climbers and are just out for he themselves. He wants to and... know. It's not that he's resistant. He wants to know the staff around him aren't climbers, mm-hmm. aren't out there for themselves, are part of what he views as a war and are people who are doing it for the right reasons. And look, on the Hill, that can be hard to find. Mm-hmm. And so he found that with Matt Duss and he was- and so In he, the foreign policy Right. And so area. he brings in Matt Duss to run his kind of and, foreign well, policy think, side. I think what's really important about Matt and this is like, I think, one of the highest compliments is Bernie's a guy who on foreign policy has been literally right forever. Like his first moments in Congress, he has to vote on the first Iraq war. I, I, everyone should go watch that speech on C-SPAN. You can look it up. Everything he said in that speech turned out to be true. I fear that someday we will regret that decision and that we are, in fact, laying the ground war, groundwork for more and more wars in that region in years to come. By the way, a hugely risky proposition at the time. I think it, I, in his memoir, he one of his first memoirs, he writes that he figured he had just ended his congressional career, store, which had just started. He walked off the floor and said to Jane, well, I guess I'm not going to win right. re-election because as people probably don't realize, it's always a... Is Vermont, up until Bernie and Pat Leahy, was a very Republican state. And even... Right, right. Bernie ran in 88 and lost. To the Republican, right. and then there's there's the good piece later, of trivia. One. Good piece of trivia you can stump anybody with in politics <laughs> is there is one Democrat in the Senate who is the only Democrat ever elected from his state, and the answer is Pat Leahy. Yeah. There's ne- is the only because right. Bernie's independent. Jeffords 
was a Republican than independent. And then you go back and everybody else is a Republican or pre-Republican kind of yeah. parties. So Bernie did, I, I, like you, he's pretty public about it in that memoir. He thought he had lost. It was a risky vote. The pressure was all to vote for it. And he, at that point, go listen to his speech. The guy who was mayor of Burlington before that gives a pretty like predictive speech about the future. He's right about PNTR and the impacts of PNTR. He was right about every trade agreement in the 90s, NAFTA, GATT, all the all those trade agreements. He was right about the WTO. He just consistently right on these issues, right about the proper position for Democrats on the TPP, by the way, mm-hmm. right about all these things. And on foreign policy, right about the Iraq war, most importantly, right? Like you just go down the list. But the problem is, the weird thing is I've just listed a bunch of things that he's right about. But the blob in DC says you're wrong if you take those positions. Even in hindsight, they kind of feel like you were wrong, even though you were right. right. You just got lucky. You might have been right in the end, but you you didn't understand that. You got lucky. You know, there are- Or you you were right for the wrong reasons. When the same guy is at the final table at the World Series of Poker 10 years in a row, they're not just lucky. Mm -hmm. And Bernie was right on foreign policy. And then he's running against Hillary Clinton, who is known for her foreign policy chops, Secretary of State, kind of- global figure for decades. And and I think the foreign policy world is a little bit out when he speaks about it, it's outside his comfort zone of the main issues he talks about. And I think what Matt did more than anything else when he came to the office was really bring a lot of this into Bernie's comfort zone and show Bernie. It's not Matt's an advisor and been like, Bernie, take this position. No, it's showing Bernie that the positions he has are the correct ones and he should be confident in executing. And showing things, him how to show his work, sort of. At showing how to show his work and on things like Yemen, showing him that he can be a leader in this space. Right. So he so he does take, ends up taking the lead in bipartisan fashion, pushing this- With Mike Lee, Rand mm-hmm. Paul, and Chris Murphy. Pushing this war powers And they uh, fail the first time it comes up, but then Khashoggi- So by the way, right again, was talking about Saudi Arabia and the problems of Saudi Arabia when everybody was like, oh, MBS is- Reformer. It's a great, oh, he's amazing. And Bernie's like, this guy's an authoritarian thug, guys. And then Khashoggi gets killed. Everyone's like, oh yeah, we hated MBS all along. Like, no, this city was like awash in MBS money Mm -hmm. and and this and and their influence and everybody. And Saudi, at the time, Saudi Arabia is raging a brutal proxy war basically against Iran and Yemen. And kids are dying, and Bernie sees we are we are a part of that war. We are supplying our airplanes are flying there, mm-hmm. you know, refueling, doing other things that are clearly war. They came up with this idea for a war powers resolution. Matt works for kind of months with this bipartisan team. And the thing about war powers resolutions is they have privilege on the floor. So it's one of the few things that a senator could bring to right. the floor. Any senator a, can, right? Can, and it just isn't done because very particular, but any senator can bring it up. So after the Khashoggi thing, there's kind of momentum to do this. I don't need to get, people can read some of the details here, but yeah, what you wanted to get to was what happened in the cloakroom the night before. Right. Yes. There was a pretty striking moment there that is both mundane yet profound at the same time. Yeah. And it's one of those moments where I was just so proud of like, it it was like the reason you work for Bernie. So we were on the floor for like two days. It, It was Nobody had ever brought a war powers resolution to the floor like this. So there were real tough procedural questions, including like war powers resolutions come with a voterama. So do things have to be germane? 
Like right. it's, what's a voterama? Voterama it, people are, is a pretend go, people haven't listened to, to the, the parliamentarian episode, episode which they should. Which they should. There are certain votes in the Senate that trigger kind of unlimited amendment processes mm-hmm. where anybody can bring up any amendment. Only like only exhaustion limits. Or the, in the case of there was a whole procedural thing where the Senate literally did the right thing, and I think it was ninety-eight to two voted that amendments to war powers resolutions had to be germane, which is the first step problem. Didn't mm-hmm. never come up, and so we had to set that precedent. And I don't need to get into that here. So now we, we're in the cloakroom and a bunch of staff from me and Matt, some committee staff from the relevant committees, some leadership staff who work for some floor staff are kind of huddled figuring out, Republicans are saying, you know, we're in debate on the bill, but the votes the next day and Republicans are like, these are the amendments we want. And there was an amendment on Israel that was you know, generic, like, let's try to make Democrats uncomfortable with this Mm -hmm. Israel amendment. Uh, And we're discussing how to, like, handle these votes. And I made a suggestion about how to handle the vote. And the staffer said, well, have you checked with AIPAC on that suggestion? And Bernie was not a part of this conversation. He was at the other end of the cloakroom, Mm -hmm. kind of doing his own thing because it was a staff level. And he, like, he was in the conversation so fast, I swear, it was like he apparated in, Mm -hmm. like Dumbledore, like... Like flew into the conversation and like at the word APAC. At the word like clearly has been listening, flies into the conversation, is like, no staffer of mine will ever ask APAC for permission for anything. But it was like a very profound moment where, you know, and and look, I wanna defend that anonymous staffer for a second, because mm-hmm. I actually think this is important to say. That's their their job Just, is to ask questions like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, they're just not pulling that out of nowhere. They're not, and by the way, that staffer on a personal level, I know, is exceedingly sympathetic to the other side of the mm-hmm. equation. Which but, is, which even more profoundly tells you how much power not just APAC, but all of these outside organizations. Well, yeah, and it's have. not just APAC. It's yeah. by the way, if it were pick another issue, it right. would have been have right. You, this is not unique to APAC at have all. Have you checked yeah. with? Right, it's just what you do. Have yeah. you checked with this organization on this? It's, but the idea with Bernie that an outside organization would be checked with on a strategy like this? No. Absolutely not. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So this was an eventful night after this vote. No, it wasn't after the vote. So this no. was before the vote. So the vote was the next day. I know what you're getting yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Let me. That was the night that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were, had their lasagna dinner. And it kept getting pushed back because Bernie was managing that was responsible for the floor. It was his bill and you needed a Democrat on the floor at all times. And his bill, he's got to be on the floor. And basically, because of the Votorama situation, you couldn't abandon the floor at all. Right. So, And it's late 2018. It's late and, 2018. And Elizabeth Warren has asked him, invited him, him, invited to, him over to her to apartment. Her. So he's kind of like pushing it back in the cloakroom. And he kind of knows what this uh, yeah, dinner is going to be about. Yeah. And and he leaves super late to go over there. And it was him and the staffer named Terrell who dropped mm-hmm. him off at the at the apartment. Right. And so it's Elizabeth Warren, her, her husband, Bruce and Bernie. And by the way, you know, the Bruce detail, I only knew a year later when other stories. Right. Broke from it. So they they have their dinner. She tells him that she's planning on running for president. So we know that everybody agrees that that happened. Yes. And and then, by the way, at the time, he legitimately was unsure about running for president. Right. And how do you think he felt about her running? I, the And I say this in the book. I think he always felt she was a formidable opponent and a formidable candidate. And because he had said it and others on our team were much more skeptical of her for a number of reasons. And Bernie would always kind of push that down and be like, no, 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 no. Like, she's mm-hmm. like smart. She works hard. Like, she's good with people. She's very good on the stomp. I've seen her. Like, he would push back on the idea that she wouldn't be a good candidate. Mm-hmm. And so then the next day after this meeting. Then we have the vote on Yemen. Mm-hmm. Vote successful. First war powers resolution to pass this way in history. Which does what? Which, look, it can be vetoed, but it basically right. it basically says... War Powers Act says you can have the president is the commander in chief. They can send troops into combat anytime they want. But Congress has the right within a 90 day window to push them back. There's 60 plus 30 about about can can say basically your authorization to continue that military operation is done unless we pass an affirmative passage. The problem is the post 9-11 War Powers Act resolution is so generic. You can fit literally any military operation in the world under it. So you need to kind of push things back. Or we need to take the step, which I think a lot of Democrats and even some Republicans are on board with, which is reversing the post 9-11 war powers resolution at this point. And, and the pressure resulted in they stopped refueling uh, uh, some fighters. They stopped with targeting assistance. Well, ultimately, it passed the House, it passed the Senate, mm-hmm. Trump vetoes, but it starts to put pressure mm-hmm. on it. And then Biden made announcements about U.S. scaling down participation, though there's been reports that we actually haven't. But the point is, it's what right. Congress can do in this situation. Right. So then you're ha- you're at a press conference talking about the War Powers Resolution. New York Times reporter Jonathan Martin. Well, this is before the press conference. So they leave the Senate chamber and they kind of, they leave out the front exit of the Senate chamber and there's a set of stairs and they walk up to the third floor where the press, Senate press mm-hmm. gallery is like the press conference room. And as they're walking up the stairs, I see J-Mart who, look, J-Mart is probably the most, one of the most dogged reporters mm-hmm. in D.C. Always the reason has he's been, been successful yeah. is because he will chase a story. Yeah. And literally, I see yeah. him chasing a story. And J-Mart 
early that morning, our phone started ringing with Jonathan Martin calling, being like, I hear Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders met last night. What they say to each other. And at first, obviously, like Bernie folks, we thought Elizabeth Warren folks mm-hmm. said something about the meeting. Elizabeth Warren folks, I think, thought Bernie folks. Turned out that he had no details other than that a meeting took place. Probably came out of the cloakroom. I, I think it either came out of somebody over because Bernie was delaying the meeting in the cloakroom. And then somebody else told me that that somebody had seen him go into Elizabeth Warren's apartment and tipped off Jamar. I, I have no idea. He wow. had a look. He's one of the most well-sourced right. reporters in D.C. Like the, bar none. Yeah. There are a few reporters as well-sourced as Jamar. Um, he comes charging up the stairs and like I see him and I know because we've been getting calls <laughs> and like hounding calls from him being like, come on, Ari, come on, like all day. And I'm focused on Yemen. I'm in the cloakroom and I have like, and you know, he's been chasing us all day though. He comes like charging up the stairs, like full steam and kind of catches up with Bernie as you kind of make a left into a hallway that leads to the press gallery. And there's a glass the press gallery staff mm-hmm. sits behind these two glass. The radio TV gallery there. That, yeah, right. and they sit behind these two glass walls, and then to the mm-hmm. left is the press conference room that mm-hmm. you sometimes see. Mm-hmm. So they're in the hallway, and it's like Murphy, Bernie, Chris Murphy, Chris Senator Murphy, yeah. uh, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, a few staff reporters, kind of coming or in the room. Jmar kind of gets to Bernie, kind of in a corner there, and is like, "What did you say to Elizabeth Warren about last night at dinner?" And Bernie, Bernie being Bernie, goes. We talked about how 80,000 children have died in Yemen, which, mm. by the way, guarantee you they did. Yeah. I guarantee right, you. Right, because they, he had just been overseeing it all day. And I'm pretty sure they propped those two. Yeah. That's something they, like, guarantee they talked about that. J. Mark's like, no, what did you have about Bernie? Like, he's pushing. And Bernie was like, Bernie said something about the New York Times not, like, the media not covering Yemen. And J. Mark, like, got really upset and was like, the New York Times has done more to cover Yemen than any other paper, which, by the way, Probably true. Might be. Uh, like they, like Mick Kristoff did a lot of writing on it. New York Times. It's all relative. It's all yeah. relative. But the yeah. New York Times did do a lot of reporting on it. And they're like screaming at each other. Mike Lee turns to me and is like, is that a conservative or a liberal protester? And I still to this day don't know if he was like joking at that point or joking at the end. Like, and I go, it's a New York Times reporter. He goes, oh, a liberal. Um, <laughs> which at which point, at some point in this, like this couldn't have been that long. I remember it as much longer than it was, but it couldn't have been that long. The basically, they J Mark was told to not to like stop and leave so they could start the press conference. And as he's coming out, he kind of mutters like "asshole" at mm-hmm. Bernie, and like it's it, you know pr- shouldn't have called Bernie an asshole, but but J J Mark's a dogged reporter. He was, he was re- reporting on what I'm sure Bernie thought of as completely frivolous story, completely rel- relative to what he's talking about. Especially yes, yeah. it's that moment where. He sees the media interested in this like dinner that he didn't that he found irrelevant in the course of the world. So what? Two longtime Senate colleagues and longtime friends had dinner compared to a compared to famine, trying to stop war. a war in Yemen. Right, right. In fairness, the Times did put the Yemen thing on the front page the next day. Oh, there you go. Maybe J. Mart called in a favor. Um, but uh, you know, it was a perfect example of Bernie Bernie's distaste for the media in that situation because he saw the media chasing down. What look that dinner became a story more than like thirteen months later, mm-hmm. but at that point, Bernie and Elizabeth—he's like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have dinner—was not a major news right. story. So, so thirteen months later, right before a debate in January ahead of the Iowa caucuses, right? Yeah, the story does break. Yeah, and so 
you got a call. What it was M- MJ Lee, I think at CNN. Yeah, Casca got a call. Who Casca, Mike Casca, spokesperson, communications yeah. director, gets For the a, campaign's comms director. Right, gets a call saying that they're going to report a story that they have sourced by some amount of anonymous sources. That at this meeting, Bernie Sanders said a woman can't, that she, or that she would not be able to win because she's a woman. Yeah, some, something like that. Uh, what was what was your response? What was Bernie's response to? I mean, my response was the the part that was what was so strange to me is I, I spent I spent more time with Bernie over those three years than anybody else in the world, hundreds if not thousands of meals with him. I've heard his thoughts on everything. I'd never heard him say anything like that. The only things I've heard him say about Elizabeth Warren were the exact opposite. And he'd have never have, there's no reason with, at the time with me or with Jeff or with Faz or with any of us that, look, knew his opinions on everything because we needed that to do our jobs. And he did recognize that. That wasn't even in the, that nothing ever like that. So it was kind of, um, it, it was shocking to us. What what could he have said that's, I mean, I that's in the ballpark? Here, I don't want to speculate on this. And I, you know, I, who knows? There were two people in the conversation, one other person in the vicinity of the conversation. And they're the only three people who know in the world what actually was said. And what I could see him saying, which is something he would he would say, is he believed that Donald Trump would use every weapon against whoever was running. So he firmly believed, and I talk about this in another point in the book, that Donald Trump would use anti-Semitism against him. Mm-hmm. He firmly believed he would use sexism. He would use racism. He would use use every kind of ticket in the book. So I could see that coming. He's going to use sexism against you. He's going to use, I could see that as something, because he did. He would consistently talk about how Donald Trump was a dangerous candidate because he was willing to demagogue on all these things. And he definitely did believe that if he were the nominee, Trump would not shy away from using anti-Semitism against him. So I could see that. And, you know, who knows what the conversation was. And you'd like to have a good faith. I'd like to have outside a campaign with the heat turned down, I'd like to have a good faith belief that everybody was honest. But I mean, I just never had heard him say anything like that. Right. And it was that was surprising to me. And I mean, surprising is even the word. It was it was unbelievable to me that he would make a comment like that in the context. Mm-hmm. This is in the context that CNN was reporting it. Right. And so you guys are pushing back on the reporter. You write in the book that the reporter talked about having sources that were as good as yours because you're saying look we have we have ter- on the record we, we have an on the record person who was in the meeting yeah. and i forget who said i don't know if it was mj but somebody else it was mj or somebody else at cnn said like our sources are as good as yours so right. and there are only a few sources right. that are as good <laughs> that as- narrows it down to two mm-hmm. one or two and so i mean the weird thing is they kept saying they had like three and four sources which just meant there are only three people in the room and we know one of them wasn't their source i mean right so I mean, it was a weird situation where, but this was after. So what? It, there's some time lapse here. Like the story comes out, Faz does an interview. Then they say our sources are as good. Like there's a, mm-hmm. Faz does an interview and says this is absolutely untrue because we fully believe that this was absolutely untrue. And you were doing tracking polling at this time and you write in the book, Ben Tolchin was doing this, this polling. Post, we were doing, yes, we were doing right. tracking in Iowa and other places. And we could see a hardening of Bernie and Warren, like second choice hardening away mm-hmm. from each other. We could see- Which is really important because if somebody's in Iowa, if somebody isn't viable, you go to, you go to somebody else. Right, that, well, it's important, but it was also important in 
what it meant if Elizabeth Warren dropped out or if Bernie dropped out. Mm -hmm. We probably wouldn't have picked up many of her supporters because our supporters hardened against each other. And you also saw a big drop in female support. Yeah, we saw a drop. Right. Yeah, at that point. Right. And you also talk in the book that the press often compared Warren and Bernie voters, like yeah. they, they in the progressive lane, like yeah. that you guys are competing for votes, but you guys never saw it that way. No. And very early, we had polling before the campaign as we were deciding whether to run. That kind of shaped our theory of the race in a lot of ways, where Warren voters were different than Bernie voters. And there's this tendency in D.C., especially among journalists, to make an ideological continuum and like, okay, Mm -hmm. Bernie voters are here, Warren voters, and say, oh, they're close to each other on the continuum, therefore they're the same, except the problem is we classified this as beer track, wine track. It it was our shorthand. Bernie voters were far more likely to be less educated, far more likely to be poorer, far more likely to be minorities than Warren voters. And the, the, there was like a set of like ideological leftists who voted for Bernie. But those people, when Elizabeth Warren says, like, I'm a capitalist to my bones, they're not going over to her. Mm-hmm. And there were a bunch of people in 2016 who were Bernie supporters in 2016 because it was kind of uh, anti-Hillary. And right. it was a, you know, it was a binary race. So some of those Elizabeth Warren supporters voted for Bernie in 2016 because of the binary nature of the race, but moved into Elizabeth Warren's camp and weren't likely to go to Bernie's camp. And in fact, what we saw was much more crossover. Bernie Biden, if you did a Venn diagram, Bernie Biden voters were much more likely than Bernie Warren voters in particular areas. And you saw that Warren could trade voters with Amy and Pete. And it was just different kind of worlds. And it was Bernie and Biden represented uh, the beer track and this other candidate represented the wine track. And Biden had some edge in because of because of his previous positions to some other places. But it was really about kind of class and not ideology. And you you were you were also with him the night that he that he had his heart attack. Yeah. Um, was it te- you and uh, Jesse? You and Jesse. Yeah. And if if you guys you know if you guys hadn't decided to take him into the urgent care, it was Je- first off, Jesse. I uh, Jesse, I. I Cannot imagine this. I'm going to really mock myself here a little bit. So Jesse had been on Bernie's different roles in the advanced world of Bernie's campaign from 2016. And we were changing out the body man role and the trip director role. And Jesse, we were kind of, we were doing some auditions basically for it because it's a really trip director and body man. You have to be able to sit in the car with the candidate. You have to be able to really anticipate what the candidate needs. You have to understand all the advanced things that are going on on the road, be able to like work on the fly, repair things, and be able to be senior enough to be assertive and aggressive at the appropriate moments when things need to be fixed. And Jesse's trial started at five o'clock that night when we landed at McCarran Airport. And we landed at McCarran and Jesse was there to meet us. And so now we're like three hours later following this fundraiser and it's just Jesse, Bernie and I in the car. And Jesse hadn't spent much time around Bernie in that close proximity to this point. He spent a little bit of time mm-hmm. in different but never like this is one of the first days he'd ever been like that. And, you know, I start the book with Ari, can you get me a chair? Mm-hmm. Which is like the moment I knew something's off here because never wants a chair. 
and we're in the car and it's just becoming very clear something's wrong. And it's not clear. It wouldn't have been clear without me having spent all that time with him because he was like, I'm tired. I don't want dinner. I want it was just it wasn't like there was never an acute moment during the heart attack where he like gripped his chest and like, right. oh. it was a very, it was, and we're in the car and there was a moment where I was like, what? He's like, I feel a tightness in my chest. And I was like, okay, that's really not good. And then I was like, anything else? And he was like, my arm hurts, but it's hurt for a while. I was like, and you know, there's like a hesitancy to Bernie's like, I don't want to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And Jesse like breaks, we have a motorcade. Jesse breaks the motorcade turn to like a first urgent care clinic. They turn us away. We had to- Why'd they turn you away? They said they were too busy and were closing. Yeah. Um, we turned to a second urgent care clinic, Elite Medical, which is next to MGM, which is mainly where people go on the strip when they uh, have a little bit too much fun. Mm -hmm. And they take him in and the doctor comes and like they hand me like a pile of insurance papers and the doctor comes out and is like, his he has a blocked artery. We need to get him to- hospital just to get this catheterized. Uh, we need to move him by ambulance. Now, Charla Bailey, who one of Bernie's favorite advancers in the world, she starts advancing a hospital arrival. She's like running ahead of the ambulance to the hospital to, to try to keep this, to try to keep it at that moment quiet because we didn't know what was going on. And second, like we didn't want his kid. The main concern was actually like, I talked to Jane and we didn't want his kids to hear about Bernie having a procedure from the media. We wanted mm -hmm. them to hear from that. And we were like, it's already after, it's already 2 a.m. on the East Coast. Like we're already like into the late night hours here. So it's not like, so we need to get work. And we were like, we need to do a press release and we need to put out a statement literally first thing in the morning, but we have to figure out what's going on and we have to alert his children. Um, so we get him to the hospital. They do the procedure. He comes out, is totally- Never went under, right? I don't actually know. I know they wheeled him in. They went through. They took him into the room. It was about an hour. It wasn't that long. So I, I don't think it was, you know, I think they, they insert, insert a tube in. It's like laparoscopic. They never cut him open. It's a, it was like a, is it called laparoscopic? It was. I think so, yeah. It's like a tiny incision. So I don't even think they have to put you out. One of my favorite moments is they're, they're asking him, uh, they're asking him the questions that, are you allergic to eggs? He's like, are you answer these questions? Yeah, so they're doing like the tent, like arrived. And the, <laughs> this doctor, Marshawn, who's the doctor's performing the surgery, they're asking the intake questions like, do, are you allergic to eggs? Oh, before that, where they said, give you, take off your wedding ring. He gave me his wedding ring, take off your glasses. He's like, no. <laughs> um, are you allergic to, are you answer these questions? And I'm like, I don't know if you're allergic <laughs> to eggs. How much pain are you in? What, what kind of question is that? <laughs> and then they, they were like, who makes medical decisions if anything happens? And he was like, Ari. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like that, that's like a weight on you. And like, I'm like doing these rounds of calls to like Jane, Jeff, Faz, calling those three to, you know, cause each has like a role where, and Faz is planning on getting on a plane, you know, mm -hmm. Jane is trying to alert the family. Plus she's got a commercial flight out at six in the morning. We're trying to move, you know, and you know, it's this situation where as soon as Bernie's out, like two to three hours later, he's like up reviewing the statement that's going out. Mm -hmm. So he ends up surging back from this, mm -hmm. um, plows into Iowa. Yep. And then a new a new player on the scene comes in that I want to talk about quick, briefly. Yep. This is DMFI. And we've done a ton of coverage of Democratic Majority for Israel. Yeah. A super PAC run by Mark Melman, a kind yep. of pollster and an operative yep. uh, that 
basically raises millions of dollars from outside, from various wealthy people, oil Seems heiresses, like a, few wealthy a handful of wealthy people. You can read some of our, some of our stories on who they are, uh, and 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 has been increasingly targeting kind of Bernie wing candidates. But they really started with Bernie. Yeah, and they spent I think one point something in Iowa. And, and then they continued spending, and then eventually threw in the towel at some point. And. Nevada. But so you write in the book about a, a meeting with Mark Melvin. Yeah. So earlier in the campaign, Mark called and asked for a meeting. And we had known Mark because he was Reed's pollster. He, and you write that he was pushing Bernie to distance himself from Ilhan and Rashida, I think. Uh, he was. It, it, the meeting was like entirely strange. The meeting was like, first, he talked a little bit about Israel policy, but him and Matt Duss really weren't getting anywhere on that. <laughs> I'm sure that yeah. at one point, and this was the strangest moment. He he did one of those like people think kind of phrasings. He basically said Bernie is a self hating Jew, and the reason is is because he says when asked where his father's from, he says his father's from Poland. That was like it was an entirely weird statement. Can you connect those dots for me? I don't quite even get the code there. I, I think. It, because there was a lot of anti-Semitism, he should say he's from the Pale, or say he's from Eastern Europe, or he's acknowledging like an anti, like something anti-Semitic instead of saying it didn't connect with me. I just remembered because I felt it was so, and it's because Mark was like it communicates to others that he might be a self-hating Jew, hmm. and it's just like it was a weird thing, and it was like okay, that's what you clear the message that was received was okay, that's what you think about Bernie. He'll probably say no, 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 I don't believe that, but it, like the clear message received and. After this meeting, he'd send like missives to the people. Camp- people are saying. People are saying. People are saying. After the campaign, he'd send like missives to to the campaign that were like, "You did an event with this Muslim person. You should condemn their anti, you know, consistent missives." And it was just very, very clear that you know what's to me what's you know what Mark does that's dangerous is there is there is real anti-Semitism in the world. There is there is real examples of it, and there's real examples of violent anti-Semitism, by the way. And one of the things that I've seen over the years, and I think others have, is there is a certain, let's call it, pro-right-wing Israeli establishment that is very happy to throw anti-Semitism around at people as a political weapon. And what's even stranger about Democratic majority is they kind of Mark would like say that behind the scenes, but they only engage in public asymmetric warfare, right? The letters that Mark wrote to the campaign weren't public, mm-hmm. but they engage in like a weird asymmetric thing where none of their ads focus on Israel. Right. Like their ads focus on like Bernie having a heart attack at one, one of the ads. Mm-hmm. Congress have done. I doubt if Bernie Sanders can beat Trump. I like Bernie. I think he has great ideas, but Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa, they're just not going to vote for a socialist. I do have some concerns about Bernie Sanders' health, considering the fact that he did have a heart attack. You know, I, I see what they do, what they what they did to Nina Turner, and are trying to do to Nina Turner. And by the way, let me let me say this: it makes me so unbelievably angry. The concept that anybody would accuse Nina Turner of being an anti-Semite is so utterly disgusting and repulsive. Knowing Nina, having like traveled the country with her, having seen her true like feelings and thoughts. This is this is somebody who doesn't hate a single soul, who is not bigoted at all, who who has who, you know, I've and and let me say this, like I've had like deep biblical conversations with Nina. Like I know her. There's no first off, there's no evidence that there's no even shred of evidence that she's ever yeah. done anything anti Semitic. 
But during her last race, they were tossing around. It made me so mm -hmm. unbelievably furious. She talked about that sitting right where you are, actually, and pe people could go back and check out that episode. It, and she seemed really pained it would, by it, it as well. But it would pain her because that's not her. There's a, like, is Nina Turner a rough and tumble political <laughs> player? Hell yeah. Nina Turner is a fighter. By the way, that's why I want her in Congress, because she's a fighter who doesn't back down to anybody. But uh, anti-bigotry, anti-hate, that's so like the core of who Nina is as a person. It's so, you, she is this like beautiful, loving soul who fights like hell for people because of that loving soul. And the idea that somebody would falsely tarnish her with the idea of anti-Semitic, with the idea that she's anti-Semitic is so repulsive to me that I can't, I can't, I can't stomach it. And the fact that Democratic majority for Israel does things like that and their allies do things like that. And the fact that they they are part of a sh political strategy to, to do things like that. I, I actually think they cheapen and harm people trying to really correct anti-Semitism. I also, by the way, think their political strategy fundamentally puts the state of Israel at risk, by the way. In what way? Because you are, I mean, you're seeing a number of progressive candidates now being more cautious about I don't know if that's cautious, the right word, but Gregorio Kassar, for instance, in Austin got into this uh, tussle with DSA. He's a DSA member because he put he sent a letter. I don't know if it was to DMFI or to somebody else laying out some things that he would support, such as he would vote to support military aid to Israel. Right. So, but what I mean by that is actually tr like trying to make sure that they don't come in and drop two million dollars on him. I think why they put Israel at risk is because they fundamentally give permission. They, they try to politically grant permission in the United States for Israel to continue down a path that is destructive for Israel. Okay. That, make, I, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's ultimately their goal. Now, they would interpret it as not that. But I, I think what you've seen is because as uh, throughout the Netanyahu government and then other governments, you know, I Israel on a path of increased international isolation, increased politicization around what defines like pro-Israel and not, increased division that I think if you're Mark Melman and your goal in life is the protection of Israel, then then I think you're doing that. I think long term, you're probably damaging your own cause, but they've picked this strategy. And by the way, and, and I'll say this, only one candidate faced anti-Semitism during the 2020 election. That was Bernie. And our campaign did face anti-Semitism. And I can go down mm -hmm. lists of things from you know, and it's not like these are the worst case. I'm not saying these are the worst cases of anti-Semitism in the world, but we had a swastika flown at a rally in, in Arizona. The Politico, Politico ran a story about Bernie's having houses and making money on his book, right? It was like the money tree. That was, yeah. that was whatever. The story was, I actually don't blame the reporter for what happened. The story was a blah, stupid story. But the editors ordered up a graphic of Bernie Sanders in front of a money tree with the headline Bernie's Secret Millions when <laughs> Bernie's <laughs> millions are not a secret. Fairly, fairly public. In fact, as probably transparently public as you could be. From his book, basically. Yeah, that's it. It's a book. And look, the fact is uh, he's had a pension from being in Congress for 30 years and from being mayor. And, you know, you, you have you're a retiree who's been at the upper end of the upper middle class to lower wealthy because you're a member of Congress income spectrum for 30 years. You're going to have a retirement. Doesn't have a lot of expenses either, as you've observed back yeah. in Burlington. Yeah. I mean, 
has kids, has other things, but you know, he made money on a book, right? Had substantial retirement savings, had a home in DC and a home in Burlington, both homes. Let me say that, and also that was the other political made them like really super fancy homes, but the money tree was the specifically putting a Jewish, the most prominent Jewish candidate in front of a money tree, perhaps you should think about it. Yeah. There was a CNN uh, Chiron that I mentioned, lower third that I mentioned in the book, uh, can coronavirus or Bernie be stopped? Now, do I think CNN knew what they were doing? No, but it is an old anti-Semitic trope that Jews cause disease. Like you should like, you know, and the fact that democratic majority for Israel would attack Bernie because, and, and I should say this about Bernie, what's interesting is Bernie was always kind of surprised at how what he felt was like a basic statement of fact lifted him among certain communities as somebody saying something that no other politician would say. When he basically said Palestinians are people and deserving mm -hmm. of human rights, he was like, I don't under like that's he's like, that's basic fact. People are people and deserve human. I don't understand. Like he just believed that was a statement of fact. He didn't believe it was a controversial statement because look, Bernie was a guy who like lived in Israel, spent time on a kibbutz. Uh, Ha, like, you know, when he was mayor of Burlington, I talk about this in the book, he ended up siding with Chabad against the ACLU about um, putting menorahs, putting a giant mm -hmm. menorah on the uh, on City Hall property. Uh, he has a letter. He had a letter written to him by Rabbi Schneerson, like thanking him for his for his work with the Chabad community. The idea that Bernie is a self-hating Jew. No, Bernie, absolutely not. And like I've seen it over and over. Is he a religious man who goes? No. And he would never claim to be, but is he someone who is, who is Jewish? Who the hall like? If there are formulative experiences for Bernie, and he's talked about this, you know, growing up and seeing Holocaust survivors in his neighborhood, is a hugely formulative experience for him and his identity. Yeah, and so do you think there was anything that could have prevented the consolidation that last weekend around South Carolina and Super Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, look, this is the hard part and the thing that people get. I've done interviews on this in the past and people get fairly upset about this. Um, I think from the beginning, we knew that one on one on Super Tuesday with Joe Biden was a very difficult path to victory, if not impossible. I think at the beginning of the campaign, we had hoped that Cory Booker and Kamala would have been stronger candidates. We got Mayor Pete. Um, instead, I think you have a situation which now through reporting of others have confirmed the kind of Obama role in mm -hmm. that consolidation. I think you had a world where let's go without the mayor, Pete and Amy dropping out consolidation. You have a world where Bernie probably is likely, I would say more likely than not to be the only candidate above threshold in California mm -hmm. because of the splits, at which point that mountain of delegates just overwhelms the process if, if that happens. But even if he's not, he wins two thirds of those delegates in that case, or actually three quarters, because it would be like 45, 15. It would be something like that. Mm -hmm. He likely wins Massachusetts. He likely wins Texas, but it's close, close, much closer races in Virginia and North Carolina with a much broader split of delegates. You end up leaving Super Tuesday with a, a delegate lead that is insurmountable. And then Democrats have to make another decision, which is, do they blow up the party to stop Bernie? Which would, what would happen if you had a, if you had Bernie Sanders winning the most delegates going to the convention and the Democratic Party not nominating him, you end, it's the end of the party. Mm -hmm. Like that convention becomes a, becomes the end of the party. 
And by the way, we saw coming out of Nevada, the likely outcome would have been a consolidation behind Bernie. People would have just right. gone there because Democrats would have wanted it over right. Democratic voters. So if they, they do drop out under pressure, the question is, could could he have prevented that consolidation? Is there anything he could have said to them, offered them? I, they, no, I don't believe so. No. I think especially because of who it was. It was Mayor Pete who, you know, I think what could have been offered to him. Nobody's more persuasive to a Mayor Pete than Obama. Yeah, it's, it's just what what is the counter on that? And look, if you're Mayor Pete, what's a, remarkable to me is you're Mayor Pete and you've had the best run you ever could possibly dream of. You basically tied with Bernie in Iowa and won like a smidgen less than one more SDE in Iowa. You come in second in New Hampshire. Everybody got blown out in Nevada. And then everybody got blown out in South Carolina. And you don't go to Super Tuesday. You're Amy Klobuchar. You probably win Minnesota if it goes to Super Tuesday, mm -hmm. which is a big deal for her. And you put yourself in like a really good position to be a VP candidate, winning Minnesota, carrying it. You drop out, right? Like, I don't know what convinces them. Uh, maybe I'm just not creative enough. I don't know what the answer is. And people are like, well, if only Bernie had embraced the establishment at this point. Like, there were a lot of post reportings. Like, if Bernie had embraced the establishment after Nevada instead of attacking them, they would have. Does anybody really believe that? That if Bernie had turned around after, first off, he wouldn't be Bernie. Like, you, you're not going to get Bernie to change his script. That's not who he is. So you, you think, and do you really think what they care about is Bernie saying nice things to them or what the establishment cares about is the policy agenda that would be implemented under Bernie? So for Bernie finally decides to drop out in April. And there's one little nugget in the book that has immense historical significance that I think very few people know about. He finally makes the decision to drop out a couple days before... Yes. It was like a day or two before. Day or two before the Wisconsin primary. Yeah. Right. You got hammered in Michigan and some other and it, But places. then there was a few weeks of no primaries. Right. And so heading into Wisconsin, there's also a crucial judicial and, election. And they're depending on, frankly, our voters turning out for that election. Hmm. Bernie voters turning out is critical. Ben Wickler, the state chair at this point? Ben Wickler is the state chair at this point. Did he talk to you guys about staying in? I don't remember him talking to us. Maybe he, he talked to somebody. I don't remember. Him. Either way, you guys decide you could have dropped out before Wisconsin. But there were two things. There was one, the idea of this turnout needs to, like, we need to win this judicial seat. And two, like, we've come to the day before a lot of people have already cast votes for different reasons. Why? Like, yeah. Why kill it all? Well, the reason why would be... Corona. Corona. But... Like... But then, but that cuts against winning the judicial which is, election. Which turned out to be incredibly critical. It gave, it gave Democrats a one-seat majority on the Supreme Court, which then by one vote rejected Trump's effort to overturn Wisconsin if a Republican had been elected to that seat instead. Which could have happened had which, not... Absolutely, absolutely would have happened. Very close race. It probably would have happened. I mean, it's, if our voters don't turn out, it definitely happens. Right. And, and so, our voters weren't turning out to vote. Like, they weren't turning out for the Supreme Court. Nobody was turning out for the Wisconsin judicial. And it's not just our voters. Let's just say this. It was a competitive primary. It was a quote unquote competitive primary. It wasn't, people would say it wasn't competitive at that point, but you still had two candidates running. Right. So then the Biden people don't show up either if right. Bernie's not. And they're voting it. for like, that's the thing. Like you're increasing Democratic votes with no Republican primary. And so if by a five, by a, by a four, three margin, if the Wisconsin Supreme Court sides with Trump, then Democrats 
lose the argument that they've been rejected in every single court challenge. Because there's, there's, there's only one vote that, that they won that and Wisconsin case by. And by the way, once by. you start that domino rolling down, and, and by the way, I, I have to say this, I talk about this in the book too. On January 6th, on that evening, Bernie and I were alone in the Capitol walking through just the glass. And the impact on him was profound of that moment. Like he saw, like he was like, we, we came close here. Because mm -hmm. we're, well, I ended up on the House side of the Capitol, actually uh, in Pramila Jayapal's office, ultimately. I had this whole, I was like in the tunnel. I was in the tunnel. Broke into a hearing room. I broke into a hearing room and barricaded myself in the room. And like my phone was dying and I had no contact. And then like, I actually, I don't think I wrote this in the book. I like texted Ro Khan. I was like, can I come to your office? But his office was in Canon. And I was like, I don't know if I can make it there. I just got chased down the thing by the police there. And finally realized Pramila Jaipal's office is kind of around the corner from where I am and got in touch with them and her chief of staff and her husband were in the office. She was out catching COVID. At the thing. Yeah. I ran there, spent hours in that office. The staff that was with Bernie were in the Senate side office. They they when they when they evacuated the Senate side, they took off rightfully. And the one staffer was with Bernie at the Capitol got kind of when they shuffled the members off, they left the staff and he ended up like escaping the building in a pretty harrowing circumstance. So I was kind of the only, so I had to come back across the building at like nine and Bernie and I were kind of alone and hadn't eaten and we went down to like the uh, the cafeteria down there, mm -hmm. which is self-service. So there was such candy there, we bought like candy and potato chips. And then like at one point he was flying up to Vermont and he had to go uh, speak to somebody in the Capitol before the vote. And we walked over to the Capitol and uh, we're walking through the hallways on the on the first floor and the glass on those windows that when you when you take a left and go in the glass is all smashed in and like everything is just it you can see the red like the white residue from all the chemical mm -hmm. spread it was it, it, it the, the impact of that was pretty profound on I think both of us well we talked about some heavy stuff in here but the book is also a romp in a lot of ways and thank you I would it's it's highly it's highly worth the read. You'll laugh, you'll cry, <laughs> and I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Yeah, a uh, lot of people. It's been the weirdest thing. People are like, wow, your book was funny. Yeah, it is. And, and it, it really is. is. Bernie yeah. is a funny. Bernie's guy. Bernie's a funny guy. <laughs> like he's sometimes a, on purpose, sometimes not. But he is a really funny guy. He has a really like cutting sense of humor. The I think the favorite line of mine is the Miley Cyrus line. <laughs> so we're in a car, we're driving, and I get a phone call from somebody in L.A. It, it, I think, turned out to be complete horseshit, but who knows, that Miley Cyrus wants to endorse Bernie, which never happened, by the way. But you'd get you'd get these phone calls from, like, somebody in L.A. who knew somebody or something and be like, oh, no, 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 right? Um, and I, I was sitting with Bernie, and I was like, Miley Cyrus wants to endorse you. And without, like, skipping a beat, he's like, so uh, will Hannah Montana campaign in Montana for us? <laughs> <laughs> and first off, the fact that he knew... Miley Cyrus was Hannah Montana. And and because uh, like this is a guy who like how that like Harry Reid like knew all the gossip. Right. <laughs> Harry Reid was like fluent in like talking Britney Spears gossip. Her Bernie Sanders? No. I was like, Sender, can I ask, like, how do you know who Miley Cyrus is? And he's like, Oh, I had to go shopping for gifts for my grandkids a few years ago and everything was Hannah Montana. There you um, go. It was just like the one like, but it's like a, you know, look, even if you don't like Bernie. I think this book will give you an idea of who he is and why why you should at least respect him. And if you do like Bernie and want to know 
Don't expect palace intrigue, by the way. I think I can, you can mm-hmm. say that. Don't expect slams on staff or people. Like I just didn't write the book to do that, nor did I want to write a book that did that. There's no, palace intrigue is incredibly boring when you don't own the palace. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I wanted to write something that was entertaining, that you could turn a page and was an actual narrative. Well, you accomplished it. Congratulations. And thanks for joining me here on Deconstructed. So The Fighting Soul, out, get April, it everywhere. April 26th, you can pre-order it now. The book is called The Fighting Soul, On the Road with Bernie Sanders by Ari Ravenhoft. Thank you, Ryan. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.